0: It's fun to think about the future. Flying cars, cities in the clouds, colonies on Venus and Mars. Okay, so we didn't end up living like the Jetsons. But a few of those visions did come true.
1: What they do is then they manufactured my cells in Petri dishes. And they grow them for a period of approximately two weeks. So that they can use these cells to put back into my body once they have re-energized the cells. And to me, it was just like total science fiction.
0: That's Judy Wilkins. Sometimes she goes by another name.
1: I mean, we had a funny thing that I was Judy Jetson.
0: Wilkins is a former patient at Dana-Farber, and she's the poster child for a bold new therapy where science fiction becomes science fact. I'm Ken Shulman, and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast.
1: Uh, My name is Judy Haley Wilkins. I live in Salem, Mass., and I own my own hair salon, and I'm a hairdresser.
0: Judy Wilkins grew up in central Massachusetts, listening to vinyl records and watching the Jetsons on TV. She's had her own hair salon for 40 years. In May of 2013, she came down with a staph infection. It wouldn't go away.
1: And then after that, um, I ended up with a lump under my left arm in my armpit area. Uh, So at that point, I went to my primary care physician just to have everything looked at. And at that point, we thought it was breast cancer.
0: It turns out Wilkins did have cancer, but it wasn't breast cancer. It was lymphoma. She saw an oncologist, and he wanted to start treatment right away. Wilkins wasn't sure. She made an appointment at Dana-Farber for a second opinion.
2: She had a slow-growing type of B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma when I first met her. That didn't require immediate therapy, and so I watched her for some time.
0: That's Karen Jacobson. She treats lymphoma patients at Dana-Farber. She told Wilkins many people with lymphoma don't need treatment, at least at first. For the moment, they just needed to monitor her condition. Wilkins would come in every three months for a checkup and blood work.
2: And then after a couple of years of keeping a close eye on her, um, she uh, the slow-growing lymphoma um, underwent something that we call transformation, which is where it, it, it acquires new genetic changes or mutations that cause it to behave like a fast-growing lymphoma. So it grows much more quickly.
0: Wilkin's slow-growing lymphoma had transformed into a fast-growing, aggressive form of cancer. That changed the landscape and the strategy. Jacobson prescribed an immediate course of chemotherapy.
1: And that's when the roller coaster ride started. First they
0: tried one drug, and when that didn't work, they tried another.
1: We did rice rituxin, blah blah blah, many, many, many. And every time I would go back for my PET scan after I would do my chemotherapies, I would still have light up spots.
0: It was a roller coaster ride. Because Judy Wilkins wasn't fighting just one cancer, she was fighting two. The original slow-growing lymphoma and the newer fast-growing lymphoma.
2: Over the next 18 months or so, she went from one therapy to the next because each time we treated one of her lymphomas, you know, successfully, the other lymphoma wouldn't go away. And then we would treat the other lymphoma.
0: It was like wrestling a tag team all by herself.
2: So we went back and forth, but over the course of a year and a half, we we never were able to get her into a complete remission.
0: Complete remission. Jacobson needed Wilkins to go into remission so she could have an allergenic stem cell transplant. That's a treatment for patients when chemo hasn't worked, or whose cancer is likely to return even after chemo. The allogenic stem cell transplant is basically a total bone marrow swap. The patient's bone marrow is completely replaced by marrow from a donor. You need to be in temporary remission to do it. Otherwise, any lingering cancer cells can contaminate the new marrow. For Wilkins, the chemo treatments weren't getting the job done. Even so, Jacobson started prepping her patient for the transplant. She explained how they'd use chemo and radiation to kill Wilkins' own bone marrow. Then they'd deliver the donor cells by infusion. She told Wilkins that after the transplant, her immune system would be wiped out. It would take months for the new marrow to churn out enough white blood cells to protect her from infection. During that time, even a common cold could be disastrous. Wilkins would have to isolate until her new immune system kicked in.
2: And Judy is a self-employed hairdresser. She owns her own hair salon. And after allogeneic stem cell transplant, you need to be out of work for a year because of your immune suppression um, and risk of infection. And that was not going to be tenable for Judy. So she was really struggling with whether that was something she would be willing to do.
1: And one of the main things for me was, I would have to have, I have parrots and I have a cat, that I would have to have them removed from my home, which was like having my kids taken away. Sorry. So for me, um, just all of that was just really, really scary. Um, But I knew that if that's what I had to do, I would do it. Um, You know, with Karen following me all the way through, and my nurses were fabulous. Kathleen McDermott walked me through everything. So at that point, I understood that this is what we needed to do in order to get rid of the lymphoma because the chemos weren't working. The chemos were just poison in my body at that point. I was getting so sick.
0: Judy Wilkins was ready for the transplant, at least in her mind. Her body had other ideas. Try as she might, Jacobson just couldn't get her into remission. She tried a non-chemotherapy drug, but that didn't work either. Without remission... There was no way they could do the stem cell transplant. The situation looked bleak. And then a ray of light. An alternative to stem cells appeared on the horizon. It was early 2016. There was a clinical trial underway. A trial for patients with the same lymphoma that Judy Wilkins had. The trial was called Zuma-1. And the therapy involved was something called CAR T-cells. It was a living drug made from T-cells, T-cells that were taken from the patient, genetically re-engineered in the lab, and then returned to the patient. There was one spot left in the Zuma-1 study. Wilkins would be patient number 101. But Judy wasn't sure she wanted to participate. There was a lot of risk.
1: One of the main things that we had talked about were the side effects. Um, of these type of things. And one of the bad side effects were brain swelling. Um, Big one was death, (laughs) which I didn't want to go down that road at all. But the brain swelling and, oh, it's hard for me to remember everything. And just um, dizziness and sick, sick, sick. So I said to Karen, I don't think I want to do this. So Karen, an incredible person, held on and she kept calling the research people, telling them that, you know, I, I need this slot for this one patient. And I'm on the other hand, I'm sitting at her office saying, you know what? Um, I think I'm gonna work through the holidays. Let me get through Christmas. Now we're in June at the, May, June at this point. And I said, maybe I'll try the next trial that, you know, you're talking about because I, I don't wanna do this. At that point I didn't realize that this was would have been the end for me.
0: There's an imaginary beast you might have seen in a museum or a book on Greek mythology. It's mentioned in the Iliad. Homer describes a monstrous, fire-breathing creature with a lion's head, a goat's body, and a dragon's tail. He calls it a chimera. Of course the chimera was strictly mythical. There aren't any fossils or footprints. But there is one place where the chimera is real, in biology. No, we're not talking about Frankenstein experiments, at least not yet. Still, there are some real-world chimeras, single organisms made up of cells with two or more different sets of genes. That's right, a composite organism. Sometimes these chimeras occur naturally, when a fetus, for example, absorbs its fraternal twin in utero. And sometimes chimeras occur as a side effect of medical treatment. If Judy Wilkins had gone ahead with her stem cell transplant, she would have become a chimera. For the rest of her life, she would have lived with blood cells that had her donor's DNA. Chimeras can also be manufactured in the laboratory. One of these are CAR T cells, chimeric, antigen receptor t-cells.
3: We're, we're essentially changing the characteristics of a normal immune cell. We're putting in new genetic information that that cell does not normally have.
0: That's Jerome Ritz. He runs the Connell and O'Reilly families cell manipulation core facility at Dana-Farber.
3: So that when it, that cell is then given back to the patient, that cell can actually target the patient's own tumor cells.
0: T-cells serve as our frontline defenders. They identify and neutralize countless threats, including, in most cases, cancer. But sometimes our frontline defenders get overwhelmed. Some cancers put on disguises and slip past our soldiers. Other cancers find a way to turn off the immune response. And sometimes our T-cells, after years of battle, just give up the fight. If this were war, the high command might send these troops for some R and R. Then they'd send them back to boot camp to retrain them and rearm them so they can recognize and defeat an ever-evolving enemy. That's what CAR T-cells are all about. It's a relatively new therapy. The FDA first approved it to treat leukemia in 2017. And CAR T's aren't for everybody or every cancer. But few therapies have shown such spectacular results in trials. Here's how it works. You take the patient's blood. You filter and isolate the T cells and put them in solution. Remember, these T cells are either spent or unable to spot the enemy or, in some cases, both. The next step is to reactivate the T cells. That's done by adding magnetic particles into the mix. Once the T cells have got their mojo back, you want to make them smart, to reset them so they can spot tumor cells and attack them. And that's where the chimera comes in. CAR T cells get an injection of artificial DNA. That's what makes them a chimera, and the injection It's not done with a microscopic needle. It's done with the help of a virus.
3: The next step is we then add a viral vector. Uh, It's actually made from HIV, which is uh, is a, a virus that can penetrate into cells.
0: Now hold on. We're not talking about infecting cancer patients with HIV. The HIV virus here is deactivated. It's just a shell a vector used to penetrate the nucleus of the T-cell. Once it's inside the nucleus, the HIV vector delivers its payload, a batch of artificial DNA manufactured in the lab. Now the T-cell is a chimera. It has its own DNA and the artificial DNA. The artificial DNA tells the T-cell to sprout a new receptor a receptor that's programmed to seek out a protein that appears on the surface of tumor cells.
3: And so as the cells are activated, they start dividing, they start replicating, and they're expanding, and when they're doing that, they're doing that with the genetic information that has now been added. So all of the cells that have been genetically modified now continue to express these new receptors.
0: Pretty soon you've got an army. And that army is infused back into the patient, shock troops equipped with the latest in tumor vision, a biochemical viewfinder that guides them to their target like a heat-seeking missile.
3: You're arming them with the right specificity and now we're able to target tumors that would not normally be susceptible to an immune attack because they have good defenses or
0: they can't be recognized. CAR T-cells do more than just sniff out trouble. They're incredibly buff. Unlike antibodies or chemical therapies, which eventually break down, CAR T-cells just keep going and going and going. They're living drugs. And that can be a problem. Like many immune cells, T-cells secrete substances called cytokines. These are proteins that regulate the immune response, both up and down. These cells are alive and they begin to function
3: autonomously. And if the cells are overactivated, they start secreting a whole variety of inflammatory cytokines that cause all kinds of problems, toxicities in the, in the patients.
0: Karen Jacobson knew the potential upside of CAR-T cell therapy. There was data from trials beginning in 2010. Most of the results were dramatic but she knew about the potential downside too. Side effects were not uncommon and sometimes dramatic. One of those was cytokine release syndrome.
2: The T cells themselves and release cytokines, which are inflammatory substances into the blood, and those lead to downstream inflammation themselves and they also activate other downstream inflammatory cells which leads to a cascade of inflammation and obviously that can cause flu-like symptoms at its minimum and it can cause people to drop their blood pressure go into shock even go into respiratory failure at its maximum
0: and there were other concerns the car t-cells it seems were able to penetrate the brain blood barrier to open a breach for fluids and inflammatory cells to trickle into the brain once there these inflammatory cells could cause additional problems.
2: And we know that there are an abundance of other cells that go into the central nervous system that are releasing some of these cytokines, which cause local inflammation in the brain. And so, you know, again, at its minimum, patients can get sort of mild confusion and disorientation, and at a maximum, they can get brain swelling, um, which can be potentially fatal.
0: Still, Jacobson was convinced that CAR T-cell therapy was the right choice for Wilkins. Chemo wasn't working. The stem cell transplant was out. Judy Wilkins was losing her battle with cancer. But for Jacobson, it wasn't just that her patient seemed to have run out of options. It was the type of cancer they were dealing with. Let's take a step back here. In order to work effectively, CAR T-cells need two conditions. First. The protein that the CAR T cell is programmed to find has to appear on every single cancer cell. You don't want to leave any cancer cells behind. Second, that same protein has to be vital for the survival of the cancer cell. Otherwise, the cancer cell can lose the protein, evade capture, and continue to replicate. On the flip side, that same target protein can't appear on healthy cells in any vital organ. CAR T cells aren't programmed to recognize tumors. They zero in on specific target proteins. And if that target protein appears, say, in the lining of the colon or the lungs, well, it won't be pretty. Jacobson knew that B cell cancers, like the one that was killing Judy Wilkins, checked all the boxes for CAR T cell therapy because there was an optimal target a protein called CD19.
2: It's necessary for the B-cell survival, so it's not easily lost. It's present on all or most of the B-cells. And the only other sort of normal cell counterpart that it's on is the mature B-cell. And we know people can live without B-cells. There are genetic inherited conditions where people are born without B-cells. And we can keep them alive and free of infection by giving them intravenous immunoglobulin.
0: On August 1, 2016, Judy Wilkins, patient number 101 in the Zuma-1 study, sat in her hospital bed at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, awaiting her first CAR T-cell infusion. One of her clients at the hair salon had made her a pair of antenna to bring with her, like a character in some space-age cartoon. Kathleen McDermott, the nurse practitioner, dared Wilkins to wear the antenna when the medical team showed up.
1: So I'm sitting in my bed and I'm, you know, trying to be really relaxed and thinking about all the good things. And Kathleen texts me back. She's like, make sure you have your antennas on. So, so sure enough, I put my antennas on and all these doctors walk into the room. There were probably like 17 people in the room, ballpark, with my doctor, Kathleen, and all my support team, but then also all the research people for CAR T-cell. So they came in the room and they're like, what the heck? And Kathleen said, well, this is Judy Judson.
0: The infusion lasted about 15 minutes. For Wilkins, it was like any other chemo treatment, a bag of foggy liquid hanging on a pole, dripping into her veins. Except this foggy liquid contained her reactivated T cells. And she didn't feel sick the way she did with chemo. After it was over she jumped out of bed and asked one of the nurses to take a picture of her with her antenna. A doctor came and ordered her back to bed. She didn't feel sick the next day either.
1: I did a ton, a ton of reading on it, so I'm anticipating getting really sick right away. And I remember that, you know, the next day I'm feeling just fine, everything is no problems at all, and I talked with Karen, and later in the day I had... uh, I called Kathleen. I said to Kathleen, I said, you know, I I need to talk to her. She said, what's the matter? I said, I think they may put the wrong cells in my body. And she was like, what? I'm like, I I said, I feel absolutely fine. I said, there's nothing wrong with me.
0: Kathleen McDermott and Karen Jacobson both told her there'd been no mistake. Those were her T-cells in the bag. T-cells reprogrammed to seek and destroy her B-cell cancer. She'd be feeling them, and pretty soon...
1: So we went on to the next day, and I remember, you know, taking my temp, and all of a sudden I said I'm feeling good, and the nurse came in, and my temp was up over 100, and I was like, I was so excited, because I'm like, oh, my God, it's finally working. It's working.
0: It was working, and it was rough. Judy Wilkins spiked a high fever. Light hurt her eyes. She felt disoriented and struggled to answer questions during her daily cognition tests, It felt like a bad case of the flu. Despite that, every morning she checked a day off the calendar she'd brought with her. She'd set a target date to go home, nine days after the infusion. She knew it was optimistic. Jacobson had warned her that most people don't leave the hospital on their target date.
1: I remember my target date. I got up that morning and I took a shower and I put a pretty dress on and did my hair because I didn't, well, I didn't have hair. (laughs) Put my wig on and made some eyebrows. And I remember when the research doctor came in the room that morning, and I had my bags were all packed in the drawer. He's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm going home today. He said, oh, I, I don't know about that. And then later they had, you know, talked with Karen, and I did go home on my target date. It was phenomenal.
0: Judy Wilkins went home on time. But she spent the next three weeks in bed, exhausted, Friends came over and lay on the bedspread beside her. She vaguely remembers watching the Summer Olympics from Rio. But she was home, surrounded by friends and her parrots and cat. And each day she felt a little stronger. Four weeks after the infusion, a friend drove her back to Boston for a PET scan. The scan was clear. Wilkins was in remission. Now she wanted to get back to work.
1: So I did the CAR T-cell August 1st, and the second week of September, I was actually standing behind my chair again, cutting hair. I won't say for a full day, but I was there. My daughter would drive me every day to work so that I could at least be there, and it was incredible, incredible.
0: By Christmas, Wilkins was working almost full time. She'd gained back some of the weight she'd lost, her hair was growing in, Every three months, she went back to Dana-Farber for a scan and blood work. Each time, the exams came out the same. Judy Wilkins was cancer-free.
1: And the best way I, I described to a lot of my clients was, it was like they put a Pac-Man in my body, and the Pac-Man would go through, and they would see a cancer cell go, um, and just eat that cancer cell instead of going through my body and destroying all my good cells.
0: Wilkins-Pac-Man, the CAR T-cells, had a healthy appetite in the Zuma-1 study. Of the 101 subjects in the clinical trial, 84% responded to the treatment. 59% showed a complete response. The numbers were even better in a follow-up trial. In that study, CAR T-cells were given to patients with refractory mantle cell lymphoma. It's an incurable cancer that usually leaves patients with only a few months to live. One year later, 83% of those patients were still alive, and most of them were still in remission. The FDA has approved CAR T-cell therapy for several forms of leukemia and lymphoma that don't respond to standard treatment. Trials are underway for a wide array of other cancers, including brain cancer. And researchers are working towards ways to make CAR T-cells safer, more specific, and less toxic. They'd like to program CAR T-cells to target two or three proteins instead of just one, to insert a kill switch into the genetic code to turn off the T-cells once they've completed their mission. And in the not-too-distant future, we could even see bespoke CAR T-cells. T-cells programmed with DNA sequenced directly from the patient's tumor. These would seek out the patient's cancer cells and nothing else. For the moment, CAR T-cell therapy can be a bumpy ride. Nearly half the subjects in the Zuma-1 study reported serious adverse effects, although none was fatal. It's these adverse effects that give doctors like Karen Jacobson pause when prescribing CAR T-cells. That, and the fact that in most patients, standard treatments work quite well.
2: Our traditional chemotherapy for lymphoma, although it is usually five and a half or six months of therapy, is generally well tolerated, and the mortality risk is very, very low. And the long-term toxicities are actually uh, pretty low as well.
0: There are some obvious advantages to CAR T-cells over traditional chemotherapy. The window for potential side effects is far more narrow, three or four weeks compared to five or six months for chemo. But the stakes are also much higher.
2: Of course... Anybody would prefer a two-week period of toxicity over a six-month period of toxicity, but you don't want to do that when there may be an increased risk of dying as a complication. So I think CAR T-cells need to get a little bit safer to be a formidable competitor to some of our frontline therapies, at least in lymphoma.
0: CAR T-cells and stem cell transplants are for cases where traditional therapies fail. Both come with warning labels. But CAR T-cell therapy has a couple of advantages over transplants. The patient doesn't need to be in remission to receive the therapy, and the patient doesn't have to live in a bubble afterwards. Judy Wilkins would not have been lying on her bed with friends at home nine days after a stem cell transplant, or even nine months.
2: This was not just life-saving for Judy because it literally saved her life and cured her lymphoma, but it was life-saving because it meant that she didn't lose her livelihood and her vitality. So it's just really a remarkable story. And Judy, as I'm sure you know from having spoken to her, is just a remarkable lady.
0: Judy Wilkins is back at work at her salon, full-time. Her parrots and cat are fine. Since her recovery she's become the number one advocate for CAR T-cell therapy. She meets with drug companies and oncology groups to stump for the Pac-Man that saved her life. She speaks at medical conventions. She meets with prospective CAR T-cell patients as well. She knows she's very fortunate.
1: I'm back to 100%. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not doing... Well, I am a little bit older now, but work is great. Uh, My life is good. I have a couple of grandkids who... I thought I may not ever see them or, you know, watch them grow up. Uh, So for me, it's just a God's blessing that I'm here to see these children. Because at one point, I didn't think I would be.
0: This summer, if all goes well, Judy Wilkins will celebrate her fifth year of being cancer-free. She visits Jacobson twice a year at Dana-Farber for checkups and a scan. The last time they met, they were both wearing masks because of covid
1: Last time I saw Kara was just a few weeks ago, and you know, we can't hug anymore. You know, we used to dance in the, don't tell her that. <laughs> we used to dance in the room, and just like, you know, so proud of me. But, you know, with the COVID, you have masks and all that. And I remember walking out of our examining room, and, you know, she looked back at me, and she said, Judy Jetson, we're doing great.
0: This past year, A year like no other has been particularly challenging at Dana-Farber.
2: We get our experiments done, but we're not swapping ideas with people anymore. We're not sitting around the lunch table talking about why my experiment didn't work and how you can help me because your experiment did work. These are the things that make academic science productive. It's your ability to brainstorm and to connect with other scientists. In our next episode, We'll learn how the
0: Institute was affected by COVID-19 and how the staff found a way to persevere and contribute. I'm Ken Schulman and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast.
2: What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it such a powerful adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to danafarber.org stories and see how what we do here changes lives
3: everywhere.